Let's begin with prayer. O Lord, you are the God who works all things after the counsel of your will. So Lord, would you will that these words would be clear, that your Son would be exalted, that the glory that is due to you will be given to you. Lord, that we would go out full of joy and wonder and amazement at what you've done for us in Christ, what you've done for us in your Spirit sealing us. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, many years ago I was candidating for a church position, and a man semi-cornered me and asked, Are you a... And I'll let you fill in whatever blank you think is the scary one. An Arminian, a Calvinist, a Susie Durkinist, whichever one you think. And I asked him, well, what do you mean by that term? And he explained what he meant. And I said, well, I don't actually think that's what that group believes. And he goes, no, no, I know that's what they think. I said, okay, well, if that's what they believe, I don't agree with them. And I agree with what you're saying. Because I think what you're saying is correct. Now, I begin this way. Because often when this discussion begins, that we're going to have in a few minutes, it quickly gets muddied because people stop looking at Scripture and they start looking at the people who are looking at Scripture. And I want us to focus on what does the Bible say. Now in saying that, I'm not saying we can't benefit from great men and women of the faith. Yes, we should never be a Paul or Apollos or Peter, but we should never disparage the insights that God has given His people. This summer, as we went to Colorado, we went on various hikes, and every time before I went, I would go online and read what people said about the hike, and it helped us. Sometimes we didn't make a wrong turn. Sometimes we knew we should stop here and enjoy a view. Sometimes we knew this is the first false summit of three, and knowing those who'd gone on the path before made us all the wiser. Well, men and women of the faith have gone through history and have walked many of these paths before, and we can glean from what they have said. As as long as they hike down the path of God's word, we follow them. When they begin to veer off, we go, I'm not listening to that person anymore because our authority is God's word. With that being said, let's now consider six things from Ephesians 1. If you have a bulletin, this outline's on the back. First, We're going to see the biblical idea of God choosing a people. Then we're going to answer five questions that the passage brings up. How did God choose us? In Christ. When did God choose us? Before the foundation of the world. What led God to choose us? His purpose and grace. Now I should say, I sent Keith like 20 different options of what this sermon outline was going to look like. So I might have mixed up these last two. At least what I have in my notes is next. What was the purpose of our choosing? Adoption to be holy. And then who participated in our choosing? The whole trinity. But I think when we get there, I flipped those last two. So, nonetheless, my mind is not infallible. Let's begin with the first one. The biblical idea of God's choosing. And note the, the repeated phrase, Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Look down to verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Or down in verse 11. In him we have an obtained inheritance, having been predestined. So three times in this passage, and as we mentioned last time, verses 3 through 14 is one long Greek sentence. 
Three times Paul uses this language of choice or predestination. And this is really important to note this because often when this discussion arises, people immediately ask, well, do you believe in predestination or free will? And if we're going to listen to the Bible and try to understand God's word from the Bible, then we need to use the words of the Bible. And the Bible says we are predestined. So every Christian should believe in predestination. Now, whether we agree on what that means, we may not agree, but every Christian should say, yes, I can read this verse that I have been predestined according to his purpose. That is true. Now, that's not just happening or being taught here in Ephesians. This idea is really throughout the Bible. It begins in Genesis 12. What got Abraham to come to God? Well, God chose him out of Ur. Then God chose Isaac, and then Israel. Why? Not because Abraham was seeking after God. You can read other passages that show he was not doing it. God made clear his choosing of Israel had nothing to do with their great character, their wisdom, or their size, but in fact was due to the opposite. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8 makes this explicit. It says, For you are holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then notice, it was not, so he's saying, it's, you weren't chosen because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it was because, so why did the Lord choose them? Because the Lord loves you. In other words, God chose us because he loves us. And why does he love us? Because he loves us. I can't go any farther than that. That is what scripture tells us. And references to God's choosing or election occur not only in the Old Testament, but also many times in the New Testament. Christians are called chosen or elect ones. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Colossians 3.12 Put on then as God's chosen ones... Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. There are events set for the elect. Jesus in Matthew 24 is telling about the end times. And he says, And if those days had not been cut short, no human would, have, would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Paul worked for the elect. Titus 1.1 Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Christians should have confidence because of their election. Romans 8.33 Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And we could go on and on showing verse after verse that just uses this language. So we as Christians have to grap grapple with what does God mean when he tells us in the Bible that we are chosen. And we're going to see five things in Ephesians that we know about this. And all of these should lead us to be changed people. That change might be more confidence in God. It might be a greater heart for evangelism. It might be a deeper pursuit of holiness or something else. But whatever, when the Bible brings these ideas up, it's not for us then to sit back and philosophize. It's to be compelled to love God, to know Him more. And the first thing we see regard regarding God's choosing is, how did God choose us? In 
Christ. Notice the language in verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly, in the heavenly places. So here he's just said, God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing, and then he's going to give, so to speak, the first one, even as he chose us in him. The first spiritual blessing God gave you was that he chose you in Christ. Every single blessing we have comes from Christ. It is not as though you get some spiritual blessings from Christ, and then as a Christian you go achieve a bunch of other spiritual blessings on your own. Everything is in Christ. You know, imagine if a Boeing sales representative went and secured a new deal with the Air Force. And it wouldn't just be that sales rep who is blessed. Everyone in the company is going to be blessed because now they're going to get this new product, this new project they're going to work on. Everyone who's united to that sales rep is blessed because of what that sales rep did. The representative's actions affect everyone else. And Jesus is the ultimate chosen one. The men have just started reading the bruised reed by Richard Sibbs, and Sibbs gets that idea, that phrase, from Isaiah 42.3. Isaiah 42 begins, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Then, while Jesus was on earth, you may remember that once he went up on the Mount of Olives with three of his disciples, and while there, the prophet Elijah and Moses appeared, and Jesus was transfigured, and the Father, God the Father, spoke from heaven, saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And Paul now in Ephesians is drawing this connection. Since Christ is the chosen one, everyone connected to him, everyone in him, as Paul uses that phrase in Ephesians, is chosen as well. Now this may seem rather trivial, why are we focusing on that we're chosen in Christ, but let me urge its importance. You know, nowadays, people love being spiritual. They love the idea that I'm connected to the divine and yet paul is reminding us here that you have no spiritual blessing outside of christ you might feel like you're having wonderful spiritual experiences you might be doing lots of spiritual practices but if those are not tied to jesus christ paul is letting us know they are not truly spiritual it is only through him and in him that all spiritual blessings come to us. Yet, when did God decide to give us spiritual blessings? Well, that's our second point of this, the third point of the outline. When did God choose us? Before the foundation of the world. That's just what verse 4 says. Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world. Before God made a single rock, a single river, a single rainbow, he chose people for him. Now I remember distinctly my senior year of high school, I went to a private school, and in my senior year, we began to have a debate, this debate about election, and I, and various other, my classmates made the argument, well what this means is that God looked down time, and he saw those who were going to choose him. I held that view, and that is a very common view today. However, I have since changed my view on that, and let me explain why. We're in Ephesians 1. Look over at Ephesians chapter 2. 
Ephesians 2 begins, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You know, God told Adam and Eve that the day they eat of the fruit, they will die. Well, did they die the day they ate of it? Yes, they did. You might go, well, no, they didn't. They did die. They died spiritually. And their spiritual death then later came to become a physical death. Thus, Romans 3.10, describing the human condition, says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. So the situation looks hopeless. We're dead. We're not seeking God. But look down at Ephesians 2.4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. What caused us to go from death to life? God. Now we weren't mostly dead. We were completely dead. We were not in the ER, just died, and if you do the electrical shocks to them, you can get them back. No, this is dead, had the funeral, been in the grave for hundreds of years dead. That much we are dead. Now let's apply that to what we're talking about with an illustration. I'm sure most of you have been to a sporting event or a public event, and they bring out the t-shirt cannon. And what does the crowd do? They go wild. They forget they have more than 25 t-shirts at home, and it's probably just going to be another junky t-shirt, but they're on their feet. Oh, I want the t-shirt. They want the t-shirt. Now imagine if they said, we're going to shoot 10 shirts, and in one of them is a certificate that if you turn it in, you'll get $100,000. Now everyone's on their feet. They are going to be fighting, literally, for these t-shirts. Now let's take that same t-shirt cannon out to a cemetery. And let's get a PA system and announce, we're shooting out t-shirts. There's $100,000. Well, what's going to happen? Nothing. No one's going to go wild. No one's going to stand up. But what if you went and you brought all of the corpses up, and you propped them in chairs, and you turned the PA system even louder? What's going to happen? Nothing. They're dead. Now think about what that means spiritually. If God looks down time and he sees a graveyard of people, and he gets the loudest PA system and says, here's your free t-shirt, what's going to happen? Nothing, because we were dead. So if God looks down time to see what we're going to do by ourselves, he doesn't see anything. For us to choose God, God must first choose us. Now please hear what I said. For us to choose God, we do and we must choose God. But the point is the primary act, the primary actor is God. And then when God gives those people in the grave new life, then they can stand up and go, I want my t-shirt out of that t-shirt cannon. But it's not until they've been given life. Now before I changed my view, I would appeal, and I know others still do, Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined right there. That's what it's telling us. He foreknew them. Because I came to study the biblical meaning of the word knew. I came to see, yes, it can mean mental awareness. It, does, it is a possibility that God could know the fact of something beforehand. That is true. So that is an option. Yet, the Bible more often uses the word know 
to refer to love and a union, such like Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. So I believe Romans 8.29 should be understood as this. For those whom God foreknew or those whom God foreloved, he also predestined. And then that actually fits what's being said here in Ephesians. Ephesians 1.5, in love he predestined. So then we don't have two kind of different views. Well, Ephesians 1.5 saying one thing, you got this camp, we're going to just keep saying this verse. Well, we're going to, Romans 8.29 people, we're going to say this verse. They're actually both saying the same thing. In God's love, love before time, he then chose. Jesus explained this idea to his disciples, John 15.16. You did not choose me, but I chose you you and again then the disciples had to respond now this truth that god chose us before the foundation of the world should have two amazing effects in our life the first is this should cause us to be more evangelistic and we often get discouraged thinking our culture hates the gospel my cousin is so hardened to christ and yet god takes dead people and he brings them to life. You can go out with confidence every time to the most hardened person because God brings people to life. And since we don't have any special markers of the elect, there's nothing hidden on my body, there's nothing on your body that says, oh, well, I'm going to witness to them because they're an elect one. No, we freely proclaim the gospel to everyone knowing that God has people he will save. You know, I think this gives us confidence because we know that God has people out there. I often think of this in relation to my fishing skills, which on a scale of 1 to 10 are about negative 30. You know, here in town, there are three ponds, you may not know this, three lakes, and three times, or not, I don't know how many times a year, but several times in the year, the Texas Park and wildlife department comes and dumps fish in. Literally, they bring like a big truck, like big truck. They back it up and they dump and fish go in. They're in water before. Yes, it's like getting fish out of a barrel. And the fish are in there. So I can go there and you can, if you want, I can show you the website. You can go look it up. You don't want to take me though. No fish caught. But there are fish in there. So I can tell people, you should keep fishing. I know there are fish in there. It doesn't really matter my skill because there are fish in there to be caught. And eventually, if I keep fishing, even I could catch a fish. Why? Because it's not about me. It's about God working. That's what this is reminding us of. That it's about God who has chosen a people and who can bring the dead to life. Now, I know that often people will argue the opposite. Well, look, if you believe that before time God chose people, that will kill any desire to witness and yes, sadly, some people have thought that. Yet at the same time, throughout history, some of the greatest missionary endeavors have been by people who know and believe that God has chosen a people. Your Romans 9 was read earlier, Paul laying out these truths of God's sovereignty. But then right after that, in Romans 10:14, it says, How then will we call on him in whom they have not heard? How will they call? And how are they to believe in him of whom... They have never, sorry, not believed, not heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Paul can teach both things. 
God chooses people, and those people are not going to hear unless people go to them and tell them the good news. Paul can talk of God's election in Romans 9, and also in Romans 10 say, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. It doesn't make him cold. It stirs his heart so that people will come to Christ. So how do we evangelize? Well, that's a great question. You should come to Sunday school. We started this morning. And we'll talk about it for the next couple months. But second, this truth should give us great confidence in God's love for us. Since God chose us before time began, nothing in time can take his love from you. God has controlled our lives for all eternity, and he will continue to do so. A pastor I know once said, it's estimated that around 100 to 120 billion have ever existed. Almost 8 billion people are alive today. And God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before time began, God knew you by name and chose you. He knew all your faults and failings, all your sin and folly, all the ways you would despise Him and His good law, and God chose you in Christ anyway. And thus we can have confidence, like Paul, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That, as Romans 8.30 says, those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those He justified, He will also Glorify. If you are saved, God has you in His hands and you will never be let go. But what led God to choose us anyways? We see that in verse 11. His purpose and grace. Ephesians 1.11 In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace. That's the purpose. His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Again, giving the time. Now, in my opinion, this aspect of this truth is so important and so helpful for us. Think about your relatives. Think about the friends you have. That you have told them the gospel. That you have prayed for them. Why is it that you believed the good news of Christ and they have not? Is it because you're smarter? Did you do more research? Were you wiser? Are you more spiritual? Are you wealthier? You know, if you can answer yes to any of those questions, then you're saying your salvation is God and a part of who you are as a person. But it's always God's grace. It's not also God's grace and I was kind of a spiritual person or God's grace and I'm a pretty smart guy who figured this out or God's grace and I'm really wise to do this. No, as Deuteronomy 7 said, God loves us because he loves us. Salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. And this should really humble us because there's nothing in us that caused our salvation. As one hymn goes, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And Paul even makes this explicit. Look at verses 4 and 5. 
Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. You know, to trust in Christ is a holy thing. And yet it didn't say the cause of your your being chosen by God is that he saw that one day you would do a holy act. You would choose him. No, our holy acts are the consequence of his choosing us. That's what it's saying. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should then go do these things. And what are those things? Holy deeds. And so the consequence of our election is that we choose God. And so this should humble us. It's not me. Paul shows the humility this should bring in 1 Corinthians 1.26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, often when people think of this topic, predestination, election, they think, oh, that's a contentious theological issue. I think we should think that's a comforting theological issue. When we think of this, it should bring us great comfort that God has loved me for all time. Great comfort that there's nothing in me that made him choose me, so there's also nothing in me that's going to mean he's going to get rid of me. You know, all of this is from God. He must increase i must decrease i must be humbled he must be exalted now we have to admit a very sad irony though and that is quite often when people come to grasp the doctrine of god's sovereign grace they then become very ungracious people they feel the need to constantly correct anyone who makes the slightest misstatement on these issues they consider it a mark of spiritual maturity that they understand these things. And sadly, I have known some Christians who the first question they ask someone if they're a Christian after they know their name is, well, when did you come to know the doctrines of grace? Well, really? Is that like the pinnacle of your Christian life when you can say some certain doctrines? The pinnacle of your Christian life was the day you came to know Christ. Yes, we mature. We have understand greater and more blessings since then. But the day you became to Christ, that was the zenith of your spiritual experience until we are fully with God in heaven. You know, if you're able to articulate these truths precisely, but it doesn't lead to a deep humility and a deep graciousness towards others, then all you've learned is facts. You have not actually grasped the truth of what this is saying. You know, the point is this, that is nothing we do adds to our salvation. It's all about God, and that should bring us such humility, such graciousness, such a heart for others. But all this begs the question, though, and yes, I did switch the order, who participated in our choosing? The whole Trinity. Paul shows the whole Trinity by the various things he says. Verse 3, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 4, even as He, so referring back to the Father, even as He chose us. Verse 5, or in love He, again it's referring back to the Father, predestined us. So God the Father made this choice of people. And then the Son secured through His death those people. We saw this earlier that we are chosen in Christ. So verse 5, this is through Christ. And then look down at verse 13. In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. In John 3, Jesus will even tell Nicodemus that the Spirit is the one who draws us to God. Now it's important to realize that the whole Trinity is involved in this, because sometimes people get this mistaken idea that Jesus really wants to save you. Jesus really wants to forgive you, but God the Father, eh, he's kind of into that punishment thing. He's kind of one of those black and white people. I don't know, Jesus. Oh, okay, you showed me your hand. I'm letting him into heaven. No, the whole Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, wants their people to come to them. They want people to be saved. And this was not some cold decision. This was not like you probably experienced when you're in elementary school and the PE teacher says, all right, Jimmy, you're the captain over here. Johnny, you're the captain over here. And of course, they pick the best players and then they get down to uh, me and the other people. And they're talking, I mean, we don't want Jeremy. Uh, well, he's better than Bill. Okay, uh, Jeremy. And they're, some of them wanted, but some didn't. No. Notice how this decision was made. Verse 5. In love, He predestined us. Romans 8.29. In His forelove, in His foreknowledge of you, He chose you. This was not some cold decision. This was God's love being shown to us. You know, this is important because when we think of our love, we're fickle. When we think of what we want, we don't always even want the same thing from one day to the next. You know, some of you know I coach some soccer teams, and a parent sent me a text last week saying that their daughter was being told one thing by one coach and another thing by me. And their daughter was getting a little frustrated because I don't know what to do. The other coach keeps telling me this and getting upset, and then Coach Jeremy tells me this. We don't always work in unison, even as the same coaches on the same team. God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit, always has worked in unison. They have always wanted the same thing. And Paul is showing us here the unity of the Trinity in our choosing. Now, if this is the Trinity, what about our role in choosing what about free will now we do need to be clear on free will because this is part of the core issue in this we need to wrestle with is god free to do what he thinks and wants did god have to create the universe or was god free to not create the universe i would say god was completely free there was nothing compelling him to do it did god have to create us could he have totally and justly created a world with animals and never put humans in it? Sure, he's God. Could 
God have created this whole world and not me? Or would that have been unjust for God not to create me? Well, there's probably an infinite variations of humanity he could make. He's not going to make them all. So God is free to do within his character whatever impels him to act. The only thing compelling God is his own character. Thus, would it be wrong for God to punish us when we rebel? No, he's free to do that. The only thing God doesn't have to do is save us. You know, the demons rebelled. Did God send Jesus to die for them? No. God did not have to save a single person. God was gracious to save anyone. So if all of humanity is running away from God and he is just to let them go the way they want, is it wrong for him in his grace to say, but some of you I don't want to get that. And he grabs them and he secures them and he puts them to heaven. No, there's no injustice in God. God was free in choosing to create. God was free in choosing who to create. And God is free in choosing who to recreate into new beings. Now, I'm sure most of you are thinking, well, that wasn't my question about free will. I meant humans' free will. But isn't that kind of the core issue in this whole discussion? Who is primary, us or God? You know, we're often so focused about humanities, but the issue is not us. The issue is God. But what about humans? Do we have free will? And I would say no and yes, depending on what you mean by free will. Now, what do we mean when we say we have free will? If by free will we mean that people should have the right to self-determine their life, then I would say on many levels, and I choose that phrase purposely, I don't think the Bible teaches that. Our culture says things like, you can be anything you want to be. Believe in yourself. You can do anything. Speak positive words in your life, and they'll come true. And I think that's complete nonsense. You know, Imagine going to a quadriplegic and telling them, you could win the 100-yard dash in the Olympics. No, they can't, and that's cruel. Imagine someone who's 7 foot tall and weighs 300 pounds saying, I want to be the winning jockey in the Kentucky Derby. It's not going to happen, buddy. I'm sorry. You can speak all the positive affirmations over that horse, but you're not going to win. It's impossible. God did not make you to be able to do that. There are many things in our life that no matter our attitude, no matter our perseverance, your self-will, your determination cannot make them happen. You may want, you may, oh, I can fly, I can fly. If you go over here and you jump, you'll fly down really fast. Because you don't have the determination in a finite creature to create what you want. We are not free in that regard. We are free within the boundaries God has given us. So let's consider the more basic idea of freedom. Are we free to choose the available choices in front of us? This morning, as I went in my closet, was I really wanting a red shirt, but a divine compulsive hand forced me to grab the blue shirt and put it on? No, I do not believe that. I believe I was free as I walked in my closet to go, I want this shirt, and I put it on. And in my freedom, I was able to choose that. I do believe the Bible teaches that humans are always free to do what is their greatest desire and within their capabilities. So to bring that to the issue at hand, 
is the idea that God chooses means that some people don't really have a choice in the matter. That they're doomed against their will and there's nothing they can do. Not at all. What does every single person freely choose to do? Well, we read it in Ephesians 2. We read it in Romans 3. They freely choose to run from God. They don't want God. They are running from God. Yet, once God comes and makes them alive, then they freely choose God. They want to choose God. There is no one who wants to go to heaven, who wants to come to Christ, but they're like, oh, there's something in me, some elect button that won't let me pick Christ. Anyone who wants to come to Christ can come to Him. On the flip side, there's no one who's saying, I don't want Christ, but He's making me. If you don't want Christ, He will give you your choice. And Jesus conveys these truths. John 5.40, Jesus tells the religious leaders, you refuse to come to me. He puts the blame on them. He says, you are culpable for your actions. In John 6, Jesus conveys both of these truths. John 6.37, all that the Father gives me, so he's saying there's some group of people that the Father has given him, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So anyone who wants to come to Jesus He'll never be cast out. Anyone can come. But then Jesus also says, seven verses later, John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So does Jesus believe it must be the Father's drawing or our responding that matters? Yes, it's both. The Father draws and we respond. As one person summarized it well, we can honestly say that we choose to respond to Christ while also saying that it was in ways we can't fully understand ordained by God. We must acknowledge a mystery. So what was the purpose of God even doing this? We're told in Ephesians 1 for the last thing, we are chosen to be adopted so that we might be holy. Adoption to be holy. Now we could jump to the ultimate purpose, which we looked at last week. Everything's to the praise of His glory. Yet sometimes there's lower level purposes that then lead to that ultimate purpose. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that, that's the purpose, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. God chose us that we might lead holy lives. If anyone takes these truths and then says, well, you know, I was chosen before your time. I can do whatever I want because I'm saved. I don't need to obey. Then you aren't understanding what it's saying. You are chosen specifically to go now lead a holy life. 2 Timothy 1.9 He saved us and called us to a holy calling. Verse 5 in Ephesians continues, In love He predestined us for... So again, another purpose. What, why do you do it? For adoption as sons. If God in His grace didn't want to just deliver you from the punishment of hell. He also wanted to bring you into His family. To love you and cherish you. Oh, what manner of love that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. Our time's running short because we could also look at other verses in John where God's people are seen as a gift 
from the Father to the Son. And we'll see in later verses of Ephesians that we're given to be a bride. There's all these images. But as we saw last week, all of this is to the praise of His glory. Let me conclude with this. We all have a real choice this morning. The God of the universe has made Himself known in His Son, Jesus. Jesus came as a real man while still being God. And He lived... He died and rose again in our place. He offers you forgiveness, reconciliation, and adoption if you trust in Him and turn from your sins. While I think it is of great spiritual benefit to know and rejoice in these truths, if you're like, I didn't understand the first thing you said to the last until now, well then listen now. Because you don't have to be able to understand everything I said to know God. All you need to do is know who Christ was, confess your sins, trust Him, turn to Him, and you can be saved eternally. Won't you come? You can't say, well, I wasn't elect, I wanted to. Right now, you can choose to follow Christ. He offers that to us. It is a real offer. When when Joshua said, choose this day whom you'll serve, he did not then mutter, but you can't really. He put it out there. When we proclaim the gospel, it is true that anyone can come. God is in control, and he in his control offers to you salvation. So won't you come? Let's pray. Oh Lord, may these not be contentious issues. May these be comforting issues that we realize your secure love of us before our life, before our parents' lives, before even this world came into being. Oh Lord, help us to see your great love, your great purpose, ultimately to see who you are, that we might go out being faithful ambassadors, being holy and blameless for you, in this world. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.